If you enjoy listening to Clinical Conversations, then maybe you'd enjoy membership with the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh. As a member of the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh, you'll have access to the RCPE education portal and access to the evening medical updates and options to view the symposia in person or online. If you would like to learn more about this, then please go on to the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh website for more information. Thank you. Welcome to Clinical Conversations. My name is Jim Parham, a member of the Trainees and Members Committee for the Royal College of Physicians, Edinburgh. Uh, today I'm pleased to be joined by Dr. Ash Lillis, who's a consultant and clinical lead for acute medicine at the Whittington Hospital and is also a national consultant advisor for Macmillan Cancer Support. And we're going to be talking today about acute oncology and oncology in the acute medical unit. So welcome, Ash. Lovely to speak to you. You too, Jim. Thanks. So I suppose if we could start, you tell us a bit about your roles and about acute oncology in general I think that'd be a really good place to start if that's okay yeah sure it's probably a bit strange as an acute medicine doctor that I am working for Macmillan Cancer Support but I think it just speaks to how much of people who are unwell with cancer are receiving care from the broadest number of clinical professionals it's not just oncology so what I do is four days a week for Whittington in North London so that's an inner city unit I don't have a cancer specific role I I'm just a jobbing acute medic doing a lot of COVID. And then one day a week, I work in a policy job with the chief medical officer of Macmillan Cancer Support. And the work that I do is looking at the experience of people with cancer when they have to access urgent care and the broader story of acute cancer care, because as our cancer population will increase, get older, acquire many, many comorbidities and that group of people, thank goodness, who are treatable but not curable cancer increases, lots more health professionals are going to be meeting people with cancer. So it's about making sure that we as generalists support a specialist oncology services and oncology specialist service can support us in acute medicine. Yeah, so I think that's that's really important, isn't it? As you say, patients are becoming more complex and more of them. So we really need those interactions and, and good teamwork and everything that's critical. So how big a problem is this? So I suppose looking at acute oncology as part of the wider healthcare issues, we did some work in actually Liverpool, where you're based, Jim, looking at acute cancer as part of urgent care and cancer. So we looked at 2,000 cancer patients who accessed urgent care over the course of 14 months. And basically, basically tried to map that to what was going on in the wider system. What we saw, and this was replicated in other work with Macmillan, was 15% of all urgent care work is cancer related. So that's huge. Cancer patients who access urgent care are more likely to end up in A&E. If they end up in A&E, they have a much higher rate of admission. So if you hit A&E with cancer, you're 80% chance you're going to end up on an inpatient bed. And if you're in an inpatient bed, your length of stay is on average 10 days versus between five and seven days for other people with kind of related and similar matched problems. So it's pretty huge. Most of that work is not done by specialist oncology. So the reason acute oncology even exists is because back in 2010, there was an NCPOD report looking at 
what happened when people with cancer ended up in hospital. And there was a lot of adverse events around treatment complications. So neutropenic sepsis and missed metastatic cord compression. So that's actually where acute oncology came from. And Oncology were asked to create a group of professionals and networks, including CNSs, that would support the care of acutely unwell cancer patients. And it's been fantastically successful in doing that. The mortality for neutropenic sepsis is so much lower than it was. We now, you know, you can't get through a foundation training without knowing how to recognise and link up for a metastatic cord compression. However, the picture changes. So as we said, that's not the only cancer picture. In fact, there's three kinds of oncology presentations. So we say acute oncology has got three different kinds of patients that come in the door. You've got the ones we were just talking about, so complications of treatment. And that only makes up about 25 to 30% of cancer presentations through the door. About 20%, so one in five, is people who are having a diagnosis as an emergency. And I think we all know that that number is increasing with late diagnoses and is hugely relevant for health inequalities. So the people who end up diagnosed as an emergency have a worse time. They're much less likely to get treatment. But the biggest and growing group is progressive cancer, treatable but not curable cancer, and then comorbidities and cancer. So it's not directly the cancer that lands you in the door, but it's very large part of the people who are admitted to hospital with cancer. So yeah, so that's really interesting. It's a, a huge part of the unselected takes work, really. And the patients are more likely to come in, more likely to present, more likely to come in and likely to stay longer than non-cancer patients. So really important that we have these in place to kind of deal with that. And I think, as you said, you know, started, acute oncology is quite a young specialty or a young discipline, isn't it? And it, as you say, started off with focusing on those neutropenic exceptions and MSCC, which has been really successful with. And because things have changed, because of that success and because things have changed, it's now broadened out. And can you tell us a bit more about the other things that acute oncology would get involved with now? So if we look at acute oncology and think, well, what is acute oncology? So there's professionals who work within acute oncology teams and every single trust that you work in has got an acute oncology service if it's got an ED. Now, many of those in district general hospitals will be staffed by clinical nurse specialists and then visiting oncologists from your local cancer centre who also do the outpatients there. So what their role is or has been is linking up with your local cancer centre. So if you turn up in an A&E, they go and help and see, bring the information from the cancer centre because we all know that information sharing is one of the massive problems of acute admissions. So unfortunately, acute oncology spend a lot of time doing that. They also help us as the generalist with cancer specific information. So in most district general hospitals, acute oncology do not have an inpatient presence. They don't have their own patients. But what they'll do is they'll come and say, I think this patient could do with going through particular MDT, have a conversation about diagnostics. Also really good for us to help us prognosticate when people are coming in. So either an acute admission in the context of an illness and we ask actually what what do we think we can benefit from which is really tough right now as a generalist because the changing face of cancer treatment you know when I was a FY1 someone with metastatic cancer would never get near an intensive care unit but now with treatable but not curable cancer and immunotherapy you've got people with breast cancer who may have a prognosis of over 10 years so 
they should absolutely be advocated. But it's difficult for us, the generalists, to know. So it's that service. Within cancer centres, it's a bit different. So that would be a, well, as you were saying, as an oncologist, a small group of clinicians who would be interested in acute oncology, who would be seeing the patients with medical problems who come into the cancer centre. Interestingly, a few of the cancer centres now have acute medics who come in and support with that work, because actually, how can you be the expert in oncology and the expert in the widest array of generalist presentations. So I think that's a really interesting link up. And the president of the Society of Acute Medicine this year is actually an acute medic who works within a cancer centre, so that's Tim Cooksley. So we're building those links as much as we can between the specialties. Yeah, yeah, I think that's really interesting, the, the different ways it works in, in different settings. So I suppose, is there anything else you wanted to discuss about acute oncology services, or do you want to move on to talk about cancer patients in the AMU? I think if you're in your hospital and you don't know your acute oncology service, then go and make contact with them. One of the key roles that we advocate for the trust where we're funding acute oncology posts from Macmillan is that a lot of it is about education. So reaching out to teams and giving them the right education tools. So if you turn up at two o'clock in the morning in ED, that the acute oncology team has made sure that that person meeting them knows where the services are that they can link up to also this is something that always interests me is every person who's having anti-cancer treatments be it immunotherapy chemotherapy or radiotherapy should have a little cancer card or a cancer booklet that they carry that has the number of their local acute oncology hotline and that should that will be staffed by and large 24 7 for someone to be able to access their information and tell you what's been going on and most professionals don't use that hotline but when we did a survey of acute oncology hotlines for Macmillan nearly all the professionals worked in it said oh yes we'd be more than happy to take a call from wider professionals if they're after some information and we can help so if in doubt call your local acute oncology hotline and they should be able to help you and especially if you're just struggling out of hours to get a bit of navigating the the complexities of info from cancer centres. That's a really good tip because at the very least they'll be able to access information about what treatment they're on and the history and hopefully clinic letters which are really useful information about treatment intent, prognosis, all sorts of helpful things like that at two o'clock in the morning, as as she said. (laughs) Okay, that's a really good tip to keep in mind. So I suppose talk about your approach to cancer patients in the AMU then? or Yeah, so I think if you're seeing someone with cancer, it's really, I think it's really helpful to have that idea of the different types of acute oncology presentation, because it can give you a little bit of a framework in what you're working with. So if we go first to those patients who have come in through the acute take, they're unwell and their imaging or examination suggests a new diagnosis of cancer. If they're not so unwell that they need to stay in hospital, you need to know how your local system works as to where they can be seen promptly. We talk a lot about the experience of diagnosis of cancer at Macmillan and we haven't cracked how Macmillan can be there when people are having these emergency diagnoses. So 50% of brain tumours are diagnosed as an emergency, 30% of lung cancer, you know, and that is not in a clinic with a CNS that can support someone. So if you are able to get someone home, it's absolutely vital that you give them the acute oncology CNS's details, that you refer them to the right MDT and that you have a follow-up. It may be that you have an ambulatory acute oncology service or you have an acute oncology nurse specialist who can coordinate your cut 
Um, so cancer of unknown primaries, that's when we've got metastatic cancer, but we don't know where it came from. So those people in those couple of weeks while they're waiting can access at least some support. There is support in every acute trust for people with cancer. Now, it may be a Macmillan Information Centre. It may be that it's not run by Macmillan, but go and have a look around. You'll find a little information desk in most hospitals and those people can link up your patients and be there either via our online presence or telephone every day of the week because that uncertainty is so difficult. It's always easier to keep someone in and that's one of the challenges of acute medicine is how we safely do this when people go home. So offering that kind of robust contact means that people don't end up coming in again through ED while they're waiting, which we've seen a lot of during COVID because people are so much frailer at diagnosis. So that's my undifferentiated cancer when they come in the door. If they're in a bed and they're unwell and we have a new diagnosis of cancer, it's really important to recognise that the chance of that patient getting to anti-cancer treatment is quite small. And that's because their performance status, which is the trickily, the only people who use it are cancer professionals. So I would be delighted if cancer professionals would come and join the clinical frailty scoring. But if you could look at performance status, so that's the symptoms that someone has related to their cancer. If someone doesn't have a performance status of zero, one or two, they are too unwell to get anti-cancer treatment and that includes immunotherapies we often think that they're they're magical and they can bring some Lazarus effect but recognizing that somebody is too unwell even to have a biopsy is really important acute oncology has led the way in looking at those patients and saying actually you know what stop we don't want to put someone through invasive investigations if they're never going to get the chemotherapy. And that can be difficult because we're so used to wanting an answer. But getting your oncology team to come in and have a discussion about what the imaging shows is really important. The other one I always spot is if somebody either with known cancer or not known cancer comes in and has confusion or a fit and the imaging shows a new metastasis and this is referred directly to the neurosurgeons if you look at the acute oncology guidance which is fantastically useful the UCONS acute oncology initial management those people don't need to go to a neurosurgeon if they're sitting up and talking to you what we need to do is reduce the swelling with steroids keep them in a bed stage them the next day and then think about the best place for them to be cared for by and large the vast majority of a mass in the head is not going to be a primary brain tumor it's more often than not a metastasis so that person is not going to be a candidate for invasive neurosurgery in the acute instance and so it's i've had a couple of people disappear off from any to neurosurgical centers in the middle of the night so it's a, the real kind of bugbear is give some steroids put them in the bed, look after them, and then we can have another thing in the cold light of day. Yeah, I think that's that's a really good point. And it, it's sort of bringing out that holistically looking at the patient, isn't it? And as I, I think as you quite rightly say, the, the desire to get an answer and to, to solve the puzzle of does this person have cancer? What cancer is it? Can be quite strong sometimes, can't it? And I think sometimes just thinking beyond that and thinking 
if they do have cancer, what's the best thing for them? Are they going to be fit for biopsies? Are they going to be fit for treatment? And I think those are, as you quite rightly say, it's about having the discussions together, isn't it? You know, thinking sensibly about what's going to be in this patient's best interest. I think having those conversations with the patients must be difficult. Do you have any thoughts about or advice about how you approach that when you're maybe you're talking to a patient about not pursuing further investigations because they wouldn't be fit for treatment? One of the ways, so it's always a new one and it difficult to say one size fits all but there are some things that I think are really helpful in talking to people about cancer treatment and that's if you're not well enough to walk into clinic you're not going to be well enough to manage chemotherapy which is very very hard treatment to manage and I think that's the most practical way I have of explained to someone about performance status and anti-cancer treatment. And then once that's there, you can say we could go and find out what kind of cancer this is, but it won't change what we're going to do for you. And it's about a positive attitude to the symptoms someone has. So the one way we can improve performance status is controlling symptoms. So it's about a what I can offer. And, you know, we can treat an infection, we can try steroids for symptoms. And sometimes we do get an improvement, but most importantly, it gives us a bit of time. So a lot of people will say, I wouldn't want to say it's cancer unless I have a biopsy. But if you have a liver full of metastases, who's benefiting from us? holding off in having that conversation. If you can get your acute oncology team to be with you, that's fantastically helpful because that links people up to further support. And I think even if somebody might get treatment and get to treatment, if you have incurable cancer, the earlier you can get involved in symptom control, palliative care, you know, there's great evidence for the palliative care model that's called enhanced supportive care, which is symptom control from the start for people who have likely to be incurable disease. And it makes that transition much easier for people because it's not falling off a cliff you know we've all had the frustration no matter where we work of somebody coming in who's been having palliative chemotherapy and then it just stopped and they feel abandoned and it's you know there's nothing else to be done it can be extremely difficult but if you've started having conversations that transition isn't quite as difficult yeah kind of more of a a gradual easing into those eventual conversations I suppose isn't it it's a really good good tip again and again so it seems to be the recurring theme of involving your acute oncology service and that's hopefully helpful and it's the other side of being the generalist for the acute oncology so you know don't expect your oncology service to be experts in management of generalist problems so I often will be like look I'm the expert in multimorbidity and acute presentations and treatment escalation planning you know that exactly what I do I'm not an expert in cancer so it's about more of a parity I think we lived in a world for quite a long time where it's well oncology said this was you know, a treatable cancer and this person could get better. Whereas actually it's that point of saying, oh, well, actually, no, they're in multi-organ failure. You know, if they got out of this, yes, their prognosis would be this, but I have an understanding of that. And that's really interesting. We did a survey, oh, 2019 where we got students who were working in 10 different hospitals to review notes for patients who had an acute oncology presentation so all inpatients cancer centers non-cancer centers and so we had 240 acute oncology admissions 
and 27% of them had any documented conversation about treatment escalation planning or DNA CPR. Now, the data we've got, so we, we looked at 5,000 admissions of people who died of cancer in Northern Ireland in 2015. So big data. These are all people who died of cancer. 77% of them had had an acute admission in the year before they died. 16% of them had three or more admissions. And if you get admitted to hospital with cancer in that cohort, a third of them died during that admission. So accessing urgent care and having an admission is a huge point of transition. And I think as professionals working across all different specialties, it's really important that we clock that, that an admission is a really high risk and important marker for us to have those conversations. Even if it's difficult, they're the population that are very high risk. We know that if we don't spot your palliative care needs in your first admission, you're half as likely to die in your preferred place of care. And the big hitter that we got from the Merseyside data with one of your colleagues, Jim, was of the 2,000 people who went to urgent care with cancer, at 12 months, 70% of them had died. So, you know, for whatever reason, not directly related to the cancer, but that's a higher rate than most people who are on a palliative care register for primary care. So accessing urgent care is a real, as you're saying, it's a a bad prognostic factor. It sounds like we can be thinking of it as an opportunity, though, to start these conversations. I don't know how you feel about it, but I think sometimes the patients have an awareness of that as well, don't they? If you ask them, you know, they know having to go to hospital is not a good thing. And that can sometimes be a good starting point for those conversations, asking them what their understanding is and how they feel their health is progressing. I don't know how you feel about that. Absolutely. Yeah. Like asking like what matters to you, what's the most important. And when I first started working at Macmillan, I was reasonably militant and angry at all the oncologists for not having conversations about death and dying. But as the years have rolled on, I've realised that I benefit from context. We aim for universal treatment escalation planning in our hospital, which is hard going, it's hard work, but we normalise it. And it means I can say, well, I talk to everyone who comes into hospital who's sick about the what ifs. You know, you're very unwell, you've ended up in hospital. Can I talk to you about if, which if you, I don't know how you find it when you're in clinic, you know, squeezing in and just in case you get sick is, is difficult. Yeah, I think it can be. And I think that, you know, that is historically and probably still a a tension between oncologists and medics that the perception is that oncologists aren't very good at talking about these things with the patients. And I'm sure, you know, that comes from a place of truth in a lot of cases. But there are there are challenges. Yeah, as you say, a lot of the time when you, you're starting the treatment plans and things, it's not the best time to discuss escalation plans and things like that. So I think the important thing is recognising these transition points and they are opportunities, aren't they, for, the, for these conversations? Yeah, it's fascinating, that idea of when can we start having these conversations and you know COVID's been really difficult but in a way gives us all an opening to have those conversations because there isn't a person out there who is living with cancer or is having cancer treatment who hasn't thought about getting very sick with COVID Mm. you know so it's it's one of the things that I talk about and I'm always amazed when people say oh, I've never ta- I've never thought about it which which may well be true you know a coping mechanism but it's it's an interesting you know phrase that I often use is if this was the end of your life what would you want it to look like so trying to make it a much more positive engagement rather than a we're not going to do this and yeah. um, so that's what one thing that I'm 
trying not to protocolize those conversations because I know if you have metastatic cancer and your heart stops, I will not be able to restart your heart and get you home. But that isn't, you know, that doesn't feel real to someone. So it's about kind of knowing the nuance in your head, but then having a very kind of personalized conversation with someone and then making sure it's recorded. So if you've bothered to have the conversation, you know, at any point in these, you know, in outpatients, in primary care, you know, making sure that information is out there on a shared care record. So when someone comes in, they don't have to have another conversation. Yeah, But that's a, you know, a much broader agenda for not just cancer. Yeah, that's really interesting. Some good ideas about how to approach those things is really helpful. Thank you. So next, if we could move on to, you're talking about the, so this other group of cancer patients that come in with kind of toxicities of a treatment and you said you see those fairly regularly. Your approach to, to patients that come in with those sort of issues? So I think we all get really nervous as generalists because cancers change so much and you have lots of fancy drugs that we don't know about. So the trick is to know what you don't know. And thank goodness, most generalists, we just like to figure out what's coming in the door and then we go and ask a friend. There's fantastic resources that I was talking about there, which were the acute oncology initial management guidance, which has got about 50 cancer and treatment related presentations on one pages on either an app or just via the website with it in a cancer patient. And it will literally lead you through and make sure you don't miss those novel treatment presentations immunotherapy i do a 10 minute session for every year all of my colleagues um because we all really worry about long-term effects of immunotherapy so i'd say you know most of my colleagues when i do this talk don't really know what are the common problems of immunotherapy the issues we really want to think about are the fact that they present late so way after cancer treatment's finished you know you can get uh, inflammation of the pituitary and your hypothalamus. So I won't even try and say the word so you can tell that I went around that. So you can get pituitary failure up to 18 months or even longer after you've finished treatment with some immunotherapies. So And they'll present with lethargy, with slightly low sodium, perhaps some visual field changes. Um, so you have to have a really high clinical suspicion. Do your TFTs, do your cortisol, just to make sure you're not missing that. It's going to be a much bigger issue as more and more people have lines and lines of different kinds of treatment. You know, people are getting CAR T therapy, so engineered T cell therapy. Goodness knows what's going to happen in four or five years when they come in the door of A&E. The other thing I'd say is looking out for things like colitis, pneumonitis, you know, think about it ask your acute oncology team because they will jump on it. Um, you don't have to know which immunotherapy does which thing. I have no idea. I know that if you have two immunotherapies together, you're more likely to get side effects, but that's about as good as I get. But you don't have to know the answers. You just have to look out for it and be confident in what you know. You as a physician, especially in training, will have an awareness of what's available for someone with clinical frailty. You'll know what's going on in your hospital and the wider services. So make sure your cancer patients don't miss out on that. Sometimes cancer patients are seen as separate and different, but actually most of their problems aren't. Most of their problems are general medical problems. So keeping a real close eye on other things. I suppose my my one interesting thing, the one thing I always take from my Macmillan work is 
doctors don't like to ask questions for which we don't have the answers to but people's needs are very significant and unmet and if we don't ask we don't know so ask people about how their mood is know that they can access the Macmillan hotline there may well be a local cancer psychology service we had cancer buddies all through covid pandemic ask your patients about money and finances and how things are at home and link them up with Macmillan either in the hospital or online or by phone because if someone has an incurable disease and their prognosis is thought to be less than six months they are entitled to non-means tested benefits but if we don't clock that they're in that period of their life they're missing out on money top up their iron to make sure their fatigue isn't too bad signpost younger people with cancer to sex and cancer guidance because you know the wider experience of someone who's living with or beyond cancer is not just about the front door and we can all do that as professionals who are meeting people so we we worry that we won't have an answer so we don't ask but don't worry about it ask identify and then link them up with the local service they will be there yeah that's really good and i suppose that's things that you wouldn't necessarily automatically think of when you're treating people with the acute presentations but it's they're all things that make such a huge difference to a cancer patient's quality of life aren't they that it's really important yeah and i think it's yeah finding out about them is the first step isn't it? you can't if you don't ask you you're not going to be able to do anything about it so that's that's really good to think about as well yeah well if we don't know how people access healthcare you know the people who get diagnosed late who are from ethnic minority groups or don't speak english they may only meet you that's really important to know that you've got an opportunity and you know you can talk to them you know if someone's coming in with something else ask them if they've had their screening you know have they done their bowel screening have they gone for their mammogram especially people who only access healthcare through secondary care or through urgent care you know engage people make sure they're going to primary care it's always an opportunity to have a word about smoking risk reduction because we forget how powerful just the conversation is as a doctor and we're so focused on the acute presentation we forget to you know think about their wider health it's a national sickness service not a national health service a lot of the time and uh, yeah i think especially you know in acute settings it, it can feel like you're just keeping your head above the water and getting people in and then getting them out as soon as possible can't you but i think if we can try and remember to do some of these things it can have a huge impact for the patients can't it so it's really good to strive for isn't it i think to, to do those bits okay great so I, i've kept you for quite a while is there any other bits you wanted to mention that we haven't been over or top tips or anything like that i don't think so i think if you see a patient with cancer have a think about whether or not this is a point in transition open those conversations and share even if it's just sharing people's initial thoughts about what would happen if they got really sick and ask them about the rest of their life there's lots of support services around and if we don't ask then people won't take up the offer and we know that they can really improve the quality of life of someone living with cancer I think that's a really nice point to end on then. So thank you very much for, your, for, for all of that. That was really interesting. So and uh, thank you for listening to the Clinical Conversations. You can check out the rest of the series wherever you get your podcasts. And if you have any feedback for us, you can tweet it to us or uh, you can give feedback at the RCPE website. So thank you very much.